Do you collect Doctor Who? With over a hundred Target books stacked up, you are definitely a Doctor Who collector. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who, including Target books, for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, you can learn a lot about Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Paul McGann, and I play the Doctor on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the dicey task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. That one will make sense shortly. <laughs> My name is Tony Witt and today we have a sometimes dicey three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hi. I don't know why that still has me laughing, but good job. <laughs> oh, well, good. Great. Because uh, then the later joke will just have you on the floor in tears. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alephan, Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Fitch-Seyfried. Interesting. There's, there's a, a future in that. <laughs> well, I think I'm going to have to leave that one in now. I cannot sing at all. Yep, there we go. If you like what you're hearing, though I just don't know why, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc depending on the amount you get per month you receive among other possible goodies there we go i'll leave that one in too mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them just like giving the pbs but not a target book since we have so many of them we know that you've had to bury them in a giant hole in the desert guarded by a single cactus that is beyond your comprehension just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air, because he says that a lot. And well, it, it is, yes, described as his favorite line, and I, I was fond of that. Yes, and as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Somnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Middleton Welling. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. 
We continue our discussion of Tom Baker's final season as we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of Megalos. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who Megalos, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by John Flanagan and Andrew McCullough, that aired from 92780 to 101880, published by Target Books in February 1983. As of this recording in September 2022, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 126 pages. Megalos. What a prick. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I saw that joke online and I had to do it because I hate this story (laughs) with a passion. Well, so it has evoked some emotional response for any of us. Oh, it absolutely has. It always has. In fact, the only happy memory I have of Megloss is that one of my first dates with Danny going to watch Doctor Who down in the hole downstairs of, um, oh God, what is the name of that gay bar in Clark? Oh God, how am I forgetting the name? talking about Touche? The Grand no, Anvil? Well, the one, the one right next to it. Oh God, no. Jack Grand Anvil. Jackhammer, that's it. Well, you said it was a hole. Jackhammer, yeah, there's there's a downstairs bar called The Hole, or at least there used to be. And the bartender there used to play Doctor Who episodes on Wednesday night at 11 p.m. And Megalos was the first one we went to see together, and that's the only happy memory I have of Megalos. While this is not one of the most hated stories in the entirety of Doctor Who, it's not regarded by many as a favorite, and I'm saying this to stave off the inevitable messages and emails I'm going to get from somebody saying, oh, but it's my favorite story. It's like, then you have really fucking bad taste. Are you so tweeting someone in particular, or this is just sort of a, a straw man that you're going to oh, serve it's not a straw as, a, man. as a cactus salad? It's not a straw man. A specific person you're thinking of. This is their favorite story. No, no, it's not. But I'm sure it's somebody's. Because every time I say this story is not well regarded by Doctor Who fandom, I get an angry message saying, oh, but it's my favorite. Yes, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Highly, highly. Precisely. I have a tattoo of the Doctor in cactus form on my forearm. (laughs) It would not surprise me. It would not surprise me. I'm sure some daft motherfucker has done that to themselves. And I can only say, if you're willing to abuse yourself in that way, oh, God. I I can imagine a person who is interested in cultivating or studying cactuses and also loves Doctor Who. Even if they didn't love the story, I could see someone producing some really good fan art. Maybe. But we don't have it on this cover. (laughs) Unfortunately, someone had to be paid to do this. (laughs) I, I don't. Well, that's true. Yeah, not good fan art. Definitely, Andrew Skilleter's cover is one of the few good things about this book. But all right, let me prove why this is not regarded by many as a favorite. And I say by many, I don't say by everybody. In 2009, Doctor Who magazine did their Mighty 200 poll to rank all of the stories. I believe it's up to that point. Maybe it was just the uh, 200 from the classic series. I know someone else is going to say, oh, it was actually for this. Please don't. And Megloss comes in at 188. Was that the staff or was it a reader poll? It was a reader poll. The fact that it came in at 188 out of 200 means that someone did indeed rank it at one. Possibly. I don't know how they actually crunched the numbers there, but there we go. That didn't keep that writer whose name we don't say on this podcast from thinking about bringing back Megloss as the villain in the Matt Smith story, The Lodger, in which Megloss is trying to get revenge for the events of this story 
and he's the mysterious lodger upstairs, and he tells the doctor that he is the doctor's greatest enemy, only to have the doctor not remember him at all. <laughs> and I would have loved that scene, even though it comes from a writer that I don't love, but that pretty much sums up the attitude of a large amount of fandom towards this story. A large amount, not everybody. Just saying. There are several notable things about this story, despite all this. It features the return of Jacqueline Hill, who played Barbara Wright way back in 1963 as Lexa. So imagine Babs is Lexa, which is indeed the case. Afterwards, she felt it actually wasn't a good idea to have previous companions come in to play different parts, even though Big Finish has done it several times. And so producer John Nathan Turner never repeated the experiment. It's also the first and only story to use the -the state-of-the-art technology Sane Sync system, which is hard to say. It was provided to the production to try free of charge. It allowed a chroma-keyed miniature to be synced up with moving live actors, which works pretty well in a story in which almost everything else doesn't. (laughs) It's also one of the few novelizations to be translated into French. And I don't have a copy of it. I thought for sure I had a copy of all the French novelizations. I don't have Megalos, probably because, I don't know, either Katrina destroyed it or I hated it. I think Katrina actually destroyed it. And, of course, the French novelizations feature the now-deceased, but not as yet self-mutilated Bogdanov twins on the back and front covers. We've talked about them before. Eh bien, pour nous, l'avenir commence tout de suite. Et pour ce premier plateau consacré à l'actualité... J'aimerais vous présenter cette grande dame qui est la science-fiction. I just loud swishing sound over my head. I apologize. I don't think you were ever on a podcast where we talked about the Bogdanov twins, but if you do a search for Bogdanov twins French, probably the first couple of images that will come up will make you think that you're looking at, say, a spitting image spoof of them from the UK. No. It's that these guys got so addicted to plastic surgery that they essentially mutilated themselves. Oh, yes. I have seen these people before. They look like caricatures, like boardwalk caricatures. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, they do. They were beautiful in their youth. Those photos of them on the French novelizations to die for, but they mutilated themselves. And then they died. But that's correlation, not causation. This story is also the reason why Tom Baker was the first person to have two wax figures at Madame Tussauds at the same time. One is as the Doctor, and the other is as Megalos as the Doctor. So there is a Doctor Who figure with spikes all over it. Once again, I could see someone doing some great things with that. You could. I don't know if the great things were done, but it seems possible. They weren't. They don't know that outstanding supervillain laugh. Truly blood chilling. (laughs) Yes, and finally, the music from the story, among others, was reused for the Red Nose Day special, The Curse of Fatal Death, which, of course, was written by Stephen Moffat. In other news, Bill Frazier, the actor who played as Grugger, only agreed to appear if he could kick K9 on screen, which he did. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and you may have noticed the entire production team has taken to joining him in Kicking K9 up to this point. Ugh. Yeah, he would later appear in K9 and Company, where neither he nor the production team kick K9. <laughs> Instead, the production team kick the viewers 
because we have to watch the damn thing. And yes, we'll be reading Canine and Company for this year's Christmas special, so hang on to your hats, folks. The voice of Megalos was actually provided by the same actor who played Diedrichs, which was Crawford Logan, who was not credited, and who can blame him, really. And for some reason, the audiobook was not produced until last year, but it was read mostly, mostly. by voice impersonator John Colshaw, with John Leeson doing the lines of K-9. And believe it or not, the two writers of this story continue to write together after this, their first successful televised first script, with McCullough notably working on the show Father Ted. So, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Allison, it's been a while since we've roped you into one of these things. So It has been, and at first I was enjoying it, then I thought uh, I should take it personally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Zastor, leader of the planet Tigella, rules a divided people. Savants and Deons are irrevocably opposed on one crucial issue, the Dodecahedron, mysterious source of all their power. To the Savants, the Dodecahedron is a miracle of science to be studied, observed, and used to benefit Tigellan civilization. To the Deons, it is a god not to be tampered with. When the power supply begins to fluctuate wildly, the whole planet is threatened, but the Tigellans cannot agree how they should deal with the problem. Zastor welcomes the arrival of the Doctor and invites him to arbitrate, but the Deons are suspicious of the Time Lord, and perhaps rightly so. I would say, from that back cover, I would not guess that there was an ancient evil cactus <laughs> uh, coming. It, it, it took me entirely by surprise. It's a bit like the Spanish Inquisition in that way, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No one sees the wicked immortal cactus coming. No, of course not. <laughs> So, Dalton, what was your first impression upon getting this book that has that image on the cover of the Doctor's Begloss? Well, not knowing about the evil cactuar that was going to grace (laughs) us with its presence, I was getting cactus from the Doctor, but I was also getting wart infestation. (laughs) (laughs) I I similarly had skin condition going, or maybe pork. Yeah, hairs and all. So that image is really kind of grotesque and off-putting so it was effective in making me worried for the doctor (laughs) and wondering what the hell was going to happen to him yeah that was just kind of the initial reaction and then the back cover it's like okay republicans and democrats are fighting over a a d12 okay got it (laughs) yes it's the d it is indeed the d12 because i have trouble with the word dodecahedron Actually, obviously I don't, but it just amuses me to call it the D12. Yeah. Because it's essentially what it is. And Allison, what was your first impression when you got the book? Well, from the cover, I would say that it's now the early 80s. And is this, uh, is this is Grugar on the cover? It is. With a laser gun? Yep. He knows that his curly hair is falling out of fashion and everyone's using the hair dryer now, but he doesn't really know the techniques <laughs> <laughs> so he's got the beard still natural. He's tried the hair dryer, but doesn't understand like curling the ends under. <laughs> I will say there's lovely lighting on the doctor's porcupine mm-hmm. skin condition. Yes. And, and the plant in the background as well. We haven't really talked much about the covers of Andrew Skilleter, even though we actually have seen quite a few of them by now because we've read so many 80s books. But it's around this time that Andrew Skilleter starts doing the covers almost exclusively for a little while and his covers are amazing and that one just beautifully painted in fact you've both been to my place so you know those prints that are up on the wall going to the bathroom 
Those are all Andrew Skilliger prints mm. because he did a series of profile prints back in the 80s and they are very lovely. Unfortunately, it's hard to find them in very good condition because most of them weren't laminated like the ones I got. But yeah, he definitely makes a silk purse out of a sow's ear here because, well, you've read the book by now. <laughs> or have we? Well, true. Well, if you're talking about giant cactus, I would not have <laughs> held it against you if you got to giant cactus and thought, oh, fuck this shit and threw the book out the window. Oh, wait, you couldn't because of the PDF. You know, shut the file down, whatever. Delete the, it the off my is. computer immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can now. That's for damn sure. Well, let's talk about what we liked first. He said, thinking that there was nothing that he himself liked. That's not true. That's actually not true. What did we like about this, if anything? Dick's prologues. Yeah. Yes. Always good and threatening and atmospheric. Mm-hmm. And we get one because the TV story does not have one. I suspected that that was the case, that they were establishing who George Morris was in the book here in a way that probably was not done on the episode. He doesn't even have a name on screen. Mm. He's just called the Earthling. That's it. He has no personality apart from someone that just got plucked off of Earth somehow in the middle of going to work. And at least Terrence Dix looks at that and says, how would that work exactly? When would he have to be plucked from Earth and under what circumstances, where would he be living in England that he'd be able to be plucked by some passing gas tax? Oh, God, the names in the story. Christ almighty. The way that, that Terrence gives him a backstory and a name and flushes him out, I almost thought that he was going to become a companion. Really? Mm. Yes. I could see that. Huh. I totally could have seen, you know, this person being brought into the story and then kind of the doctor and Romana figure out, you know, the story of the week and they're done. And especially when Romana's like, we've been called back to Gallifrey. Surely they're not going to take him back to Earth. They're just going to bring him along with them. <laughs> and yeah, I totally thought that he was going to be like a companion because I keep wondering, you know, we know from you that this is the, the fourth Doctor's last season, so it's like, okay, he's going to transition soon. Is Romana going to leave at some point coming up? Then, you know, my mind gets going, but... Yeah, yeah, understandably. I, I didn't think of it like that, Dalton, but I definitely... I see, the characterization vacillates between courage and terror as opposed to courage and cowardice. Mm-hmm in a way that we often see it with a companion, that they are astounded and they're terrified, but they find courage and assert themselves as well. So. Yeah. And the, and the way that he kept being inserted into the story, like fighting with Megalos, trying to get control back over his body, he felt like a fully realized character mm -hmm. in that way. Yeah. And I think he probably would have worked well, possibly as a companion. In fact, arguably better than what we do end up getting. I mean, it's not a terrible idea to have sort of a twee middle-aged professional as a companion. Yeah, but this show is going to move away from that pretty severely for a good long while. In fact, uh, let's see, when's the next time we get a companion who is over 30? 
uh, I'm almost certain Mel is not over 30. I know Tegan is not. I know for a fact that... Uh, <laughs> We're moving into Wilt territory here. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. That and the audio dramas, of course, had Evelyn, who is, I believe, in her 60s. And I've always been wanting a companion like that on screen, but, you know, the teeny boppers who frequent Tumblr to this day probably would not care for that because they can't identify with her. Hmm. Oh, whatever. Tony hates the youth. I seem to, don't I? It's a remarkably like lifelike illusion. <laughs> God. But yeah, George is described as having a pleasant open face. You will see this phrase a lot soon, because that is Dick's phrase of choice to describe the next doctor. God only knows what it means. He's <laughs> a predator. <laughs> I've heard this before in the phrase open English face, like Habsburg nose, like a way whites describe one another. This, specific, this or that specific kind of <laughs> European facial feature. I don't know what it means either. Is it like welcoming, like open? That's what I've always interpreted as. As opposed to looking yeah. like a shifty foreigner? Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it refers yeah. to open like a bone structure or a demeanor. I, I'm almost certain it means demeanor, especially since that really does describe the next doctor quite well. So I think that's a lot of it. Someone will email and let us know what it means. Which is weird because the actor who plays George does not have the same sort of face as Peter Davison does. <laughs> so I don't know why he's described them the same way, but it is interesting that we get so much of that on his character and it really does make his plight a lot more arresting and interesting mm -hmm. than it actually ends up being on screen because it's just kind of body horror on screen. Well, and I also amused myself in the background thinking about him being horrified at all of the regulatory violations he was being forced to enact. <laughs> <laughs> like he's a bank, he's a bank vice president, isn't he, or a bank manager? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, and the fact that later on in the book, way later on in the book, we actually get Megloss talking about, oh well. The human will die eventually anyway, and I'm going to need a new body. And it's like, oh my god, that's horrific. So how do our villain's abilities work exactly? And in, in it's natural form. He is a not immortal, but ancient plant, mm -hmm. the last of his type. So his skill set is to possess a biped or something that would roughly... Kingdom Animalia, mm -hmm. and then he can shapeshift, yes. but he can't shapeshift directly from plant form to something else. That's right. But also, this kind of gets into the concept of what is a plant really if he can just kind of get up and walk around well, without roots. The cactus can't. That seems to be the implication, in fact. But then the cactus kind of slithers away at the end. Yeah, doesn't it? Well, it's like an ooze, kind of. It's not even cactus form at that point yeah really. and it's really embarrassing on screen as you might expect but i will also give dick's credit for this that he obviously sees that plot hole as well and he uses chapter 11 to write this really nice bit of exposition that explains how the cactus people ended up achieving anything at all because that's far more than the screenwriters are interested in doing because that damn cactus is just there 
I mean, I know we give Tarot Sticks a hard time on here, but I felt like he was struggling valiantly with, with the plot that he was given. He was, because yeah. he's trying to hit that 123 pages, and this script in particular is making it difficult for him because episode three is infamous for the fact that originally it underran by seven minutes. Mm. That is an eternity in television time. Yes, it is. So you can imagine how padded the script is it is well obviously you don't have to imagine it because you have the chronic hysteresis in front of you (laughs) (laughs) yes the entirety of episode one essentially is that damn chronic hysteresis and yet somehow episode three underruns by seven minutes and that's something we've seen before in a previous story Oh, you mean the time loop? The time loop, not not called that. Yes. But, what, what was you know? We've had what story was it, Dalton? I feel like we've had it two or three times. Yeah. <laughs> if it, well, let's see. If you're thinking about the Armageddon Factor, which is the last key to time story, mm-hmm. the Doctor and Romana use the key to time to actually create a stable time loop. Yeah. Of course, it's not stable because it's not the complete key and it's breaking down as they watch. But I'm trying to think where else have we seen time loops. Where else have we seen time loops? Where have we seen else have we seen two warring factions on a planet that have to get together to make peace? Where else have we seen? A... <laughs> if you're saying there's nothing original in the civilization script? <laughs> about to use the the thing at the center of their culture and religion that they don't understand. I mean, they're tropes yeah. are us. Yeah, it's essentially I, uh, <laughs> that. I went to see the first Thor movie with a friend who afterwards said this was his pet peeve in sci-fi is a civilization based around technology that they don't understand at all oh i know the story is that this dodecahedron descended from the heavens and they thought hey let's plug our toasters into it and it worked once again i think dex i don't know how much of this was, was added by him or was in the original it does give a decent explanation that they were not nearly as sophisticated but they did figure out that it was somehow something that could be used for power supply but they would not have been able to have developed it themselves. That's essentially Dick's, because I think it is stated on screen that they do not know where the dodecahedron came from, which is why the Daeons think that it came from the heavens from their god, and they worship it as one. Whereas the savants are like, you know, science. <laughs> there must be some creator for this thing. And that by itself would have been an interesting plot struggle, perhaps? But then to bring in the cactus. <sighs> I mean, there's a difference between beating a dead horse and just, you know recurring classic themes. But this one didn't bring enough interesting to those familiar elements, I thought, to find anything new in them. I, I would agree. And I would say that this isn't so much a case of Doctor Who beating a dead horse. is just kind of beating it to the point of death and then bringing it back only to beat it again. It's inhumane. Yeah, it, it, to <laughs> us, basically. <laughs> Because we've seen that, too. We've seen the whole society devolving around a technology to the point that they worship it when we saw, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but the uh, story Underworld, that we've seen all of this in, and I can't believe I'm about to call Underworld a better story, (laughs) but we've seen it in better stories. I mean, they can still both be bad, but one has to be better than the other. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> or well, worse. Yeah. Exactly. I'm sure Underworld actually is higher up on the Mighty 200 than this one is. 
though. I wouldn't put that to the test, but I really should have looked it up, but I didn't think I was going to be talking about it tonight. Mm. Depends on how much people like cactuses. Yeah, that's true. Oh. Succulents are making a big cultural impact lately. So. <laughs> One other thing that I liked, and that was Brotodex uh, Primal and Unbridled Avarice for the Red Coat. Yes. Oh, and yes. that it turned out to be a significant plot point as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that actually is pretty good. That being said, of course, his name is an acronym for bad actor. So they were <laughs> the writers were a little bit saddened by the fact that they got a decent actor to play that part. Wait, I, I don't understand. I've messed the joke entirely. Okay. Brodadak is an acronym for bad actor. So I don't an know acronym? if... An acronym? No. Ac- no, not acronym. Oh, Okay, it's like the what is called the word scramble. Yeah, yeah, acronym. I okay. had it right. Why no, are you making no, me doubt myself? Uh, going by the first initials. Wait, what? You're an English professor. Anagram. 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 There we go. All right. Son of a bitch. Could edit out Tony's shame. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's obviously my rage at the story that is making me <laughs> mindless. I wouldn't have. I certainly would not have figured that out. That and no, my, that you know, six classes the semester schedule i mean i wouldn't have figured out that it was an anagram and you did so it's an anagram i'm just lashing out out of you at you out of insecurity <laughs> i i should be used to that by now but um anagram, <laughs> oh, sick burn. there we go Jimmy. anagram that's what i was trying to say of where were we on this we were talking about uh, his thank you yeah. his avarice loves in many different senses the red coat it is a lovely coat it is Bad actor still works because he he's not acting, he's not being a bad actor, but he's doing bad things. So he is still a bad actor. Is he a bad actor or is he a bad actor? <laughs> <laughs> oh God! I love that. This is what we're talking about. Yes. <laughs> Whenever people use that term, to, like in professional situations, to refer to you know. Did someone make a mistake or are they being a bad actor? I always visualize a mind for a moment who's not very good at it, trapped in the invisible box. Well, that would be all the gas tax. And I'm almost certain that there is a joke in that name, too. Gas tax? Seriously? In 1980? That's got to be some slam against OPEC or something. Yeah, that's... Uh, well, they're greedy, so... Yeah. I think gas as being an americanism well that's true that is true so it's probably not that it's just i'm so willing to see the bad in this oh god (laughs) but we were talking about the good and here i have thrown us down the garden path again well but the two coats plot point is both clever and asinine i thought (laughs) (laughs) well okay so is megalos the plant who can shapeshift, but only after he possesses something mammalian or mammalian adjacent, able to also generate clothing that retains its state after it's been cast off and no longer is in contact with the rest of them. Yeah, see, that's where my mind went to. Doesn't he use a machine to make the clothes, though? Does he? I feel like I remember there being a part where, like... Mm. Oh, gosh, please seeing... tell me there's that. Yeah, I I don't know that I have a highlight for it. <laughs> but I do remember there being something about him, like, seeing the doctor and then inputting that image into a machine or something there 
they're about, Let's and then see. having the outfit. <laughs> Which chapter would it be on? Chapter four, I guess. Yeah, three or four. It is four. So I owe an apology. It's in four. And uh, the reason why I react like that is because, oh, thank God, Terrence Dix, you've explained something way because it's (laughs) not on screen. On screen, he just takes the doctor's form immediately, coat and all. And the only seeming explanation is that George has a suit coat on. So maybe he's transformed George's clothes, and but then it would revert back to George's coat if it came off the body, and it's it's just a bunch of hoo-ha. Whereas, if he has a machine where he's actually making the clothing, then yeah, that later line about, I thought you both should get a treat, actually makes a little more sense, and the Doctor's bluff is a good one. But that's only if it actually exists to begin with. So we've just seen Terrence Dix like trying to save the story left and right, and that's not usually how we characterize the work of Terrence Dix. Yeah. <laughs> On this August podcast. So yes, we're praising him, but also it's a really bad story. Yeah. Yeah, so if he has to work this hard. Yeah, the scores are going to be weird on this one, I think. I found the bit about the clothes. You found it, yes. Uh, so he comes out of the machine. We get a scene back with the, the doctor and uh, Romana. And it says, the gas tax watched in astonishment as Megalos completed the process of transformation. He made a few final adjustments to his height and the shape of his face. He studied the doctor's clothes carefully, punched coordinates into a machine, and disappeared into a cubicle, returning very shortly dressed exactly like the doctor. There it is. Thank you. I don't know how I missed that. Again, I don't know if that is the machine making clothes for him or the machine changing his appearance to the clothes. Oh, I'm almost certain it's the clothes. And I think that's how he's getting around that whole thing of the two coats. because, Or the fact that, you know, Brodidak wants that coat, so Megalos gives it to him. Taron Sticks is not a stupid man. We no. never said that he is a stupid man. No. no, never. Sometimes he's on the lazy side in a way that it's hard to blame him for considering the amount of output that, well, okay, that he did sign up to put out. Uh, True. Right. Well, he's writing this, this is published in 1983 at a point when Taron Sticks isn't writing nearly as many of these. So I have a feeling he has a little more attention to give them. And He's never stupid. He just doesn't always act like he cares. No, that's true. And I, I doubt he cares about this one. But it feels like he's gone into script editor mode on this. And I said, okay, Christopher H. Bidmead apparently didn't do as much editing on this as he could have. Actually, Bidmead did quite a bit and had to because, like I said, they were inexperienced writers and he had to do a lot of rewriting on it. But Dix probably looked at it and said, hmm, that's not making sense either. Let's come up with these (laughs) explanations for this happening. So we've got the explanation of how these cactus people could build a dodecahedron and wipe themselves out in a war that doesn't involve, you know, just hoping that enemy soldiers run into them and accidentally impale themselves. And the dual coats. Mm Mm-hmm. But you're right, Allison. He is working really hard to make this story that doesn't make any sense make some sense. I feel like Lexa and Karis are not terrible. Oh, that's true. I mean, not particularly imaginative, but there, there's some characterization. 
Yeah, but not nearly as much as they deserve, especially Lexa. One addition that Bidmead insisted on was that Lexa should sacrifice herself to save Ramana's life. Actually, the twist I expected was that Lexa would sacrifice Meglo, thinking she was sacrificing the Doctor. Oh, well, that could have worked. That could have been very interesting, but the original script was not written with that in mind. In fact, after the Doctor is rescued from being almost sacrificed to Ty, she disappears from the plot entirely. And Bidmead said, you know, we went to all this trouble to get Jacqueline Hill back to play this. This character needs some resolution. This character needs some form of redemption. So why not have her sacrifice herself to save Romana, even though there's no indication she caught Romana's name? Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. So it's like, okay. In fact, Dix expands that as well. And her death and sacrifice is much more affecting on the page than it is on screen. Because you don't even see the shot that kills her. Or rather, you do. You see the gas tax shooting it. You don't see her getting hit by it. It's bizarrely directed. It's just, it's so unnecessary. My, my note for that is, this is so stupid. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, like you said, she doesn't even know who Romana is. No. So she doesn't know that Romana could regenerate. That... And it just, it comes out of nowhere. There's no reason for her to die. Yeah. I mean, it's usual for a story, though, where you have two people who represent personifications of science and religion to not just say that one is always bad. So I guess I considered it too negative to have the person who represented a, uh, shall we say, delicately a religious perspective, (laughs) uh, who was, you know, setting up a human sacrifice uh, via squashing a person. I guess they wanted to have something redemptive about a character who's serving as serving so symbolically. Yeah, especially in a story where science seems to be correct, you have to have the religious side of it also have some. <laughs> Ooh, I almost stepped in it there. Um, you have to have the religious side have that redemptive quality as well, right? You have to say well to show that Lexa thought she was doing the right thing. Yes, to stage a sacrifice, she wasn't using their theological concepts for personal power or gain. She actually believed them. She's not just evil. Right. Yes. And if we look at it that way, it just about works. I'm not saying Dalton's wrong there. In fact, I I agree with you. It does come out of nowhere, but just think of how much more stupid it would have been for Lexa to just disappear from the plot without a word. I think it would have been more effective to keep her alive and then have her exist on the surface with with savants as well. Oh, yeah. That's a point. Speaking of the surface, does it kill you on contact no. or not? Like, is it dangerous or no? It, we no. go from, you'll only survive up there for the briefest amount of time, every plant is poisonous, to, oh, well, they're making a jolly good go of it. There's a, there's a homestead going on, a little community garden. Yeah, and Romana's like 5'6", and she manages to fight off a bunch of them herself. So it can't be that bad. Mm. Yeah, that's another aspect of the plot that doesn't make any sense, especially when you think, wait a minute, the dodecahedron descended, what, thousands of years ago, and then they moved under the surface because the surface wasn't habitable? Yeah, it's like, like what what happened to make them finally be like, okay, screw dealing with all these plants? <laughs> mm-hmm. well, did I miss a connection between Megloss and... 
the predatory plants on the surface of this planet? Or there is isn't just, one. But there's just a lot of that going around in the solar system. That could have been interesting. That that could have been really interesting because... Well, I thought it was going to be some way connected to those plants. Like he would be their new leader or they were distantly related or something like that. That would have made a much more interesting story. Because Not much more, but it would have been... Yeah. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Not much more. But what I'm trying to say is that it would have been the influence of the dodecahedron itself mm -hmm. that caused those plants to go hostile because it was created by plants. I mean, as a person who lives five feet underground and experienced a fun <laughs> flood today, not not in my home, but in a storage area or something, I mean, I do see the appeal to going underground for temperature control and then the appeal to returning to the surface. No. Yeah. But... I mean, I, don't know. I think that actually can be a fair... All right. I, I tried to make a connection there that, that didn't work. <laughs> you can once again well, feel free to ignore. But I think there no, can no. be something interesting about a civilization that has a history of profoundly changing where and how they live. They go from the surface to caves or from caves to the surface or from their planet to a moon or a satellite or something like that. Yeah. I thought they were going to dig into at least, once again, some more of the classic elements of that but it just seemed like it was it went from being unthinkably terrifying to ain't no thing without an explanation as to why yeah there's no consistency like i thought maybe once meglos was dead maybe there was some connection to those plants where suddenly they would no longer be hostile and that was not it oh i just think it's something that your puny mind cannot comprehend <laughs> It's beyond. <laughs> True. <laughs> it's beyond your comprehension. It is. It's, it is entirely. But you're right. That sort of connection, uh, it could have made the story a little more internally consistent. Mm -hmm. But it, 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 it's lacking that internal consistency. And Dix is trying very hard already to enforce some internal consistency on to, it. To put lipstick on this pig. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost working because the book believe it or not, is better than the televised version. But a pig has lips, and a cactus does not. It does not, not unless it becomes, you know, Tom Baker or uh, the other guy. George. I actually don't remember the name of the actor who plays him, but yeah. I think they interview him on the um, DVD and the Blu-ray, but I'll have to look again. I had, that would involve watching the story again. Something but, else that bothers me is them being worried about their food going bad and then we find out that without power everything's freezing yes how does that work exactly i don't i don't know well what is the food source also are they harvesting cave crickets well no yes, yes. far i mean you do a little something you know throw us a bone of how they've survived thus far they say something about their frozen food stores it's like oh they have banquet meals down there <laughs> What the hell? Maybe they do manufacture their own food, but even if they do, why would having no power source cause ice to start forming in the corridors? It's like, how far goddamn down are they? Well, because that's not how underground works. They, like I said, the whole appeal of being even slightly underground is temperature stability. Does yes. it get that hot or that cold? Unless no. you're you know, close to the planet core or really close to the surface. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe that's why Megalos was kind of like, huh, heat shields. How interesting. And maybe, oh, now I'm making up explanations again and doing the original writer's work for them. <laughs> maybe their planet doesn't have a molten core like ours. Maybe it is 
I, I, I can't even finish the sentence. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, well, I tried. If the original writers couldn't be bothered, why should you? Because we're putting a lot more work into it at this point. And before I go any further along that track, let me say to our listeners, I am well aware that both of these writers have gone on to bigger and better things. They weren't there at the time they wrote this story. Hence, it is at 188 out of 200. So lest you think that I'm bashing writers for no apparent reason, you have to admit, there are problems in this story, and Terrence Dix being as good a writer as he is is the only reason why this book is at all readable. Yeah. Well, I like to think I've improved in the last 40 years, so... Hmm? I, I like to think I've improved in the last 40 years, so I, I wasn't thinking of bashing people at all just thinking this story that was dashed off 40 years ago or more than 40 years ago isn't very good yeah i do recall that the problem that john nathan turner and christopher h bidbead had coming into their respective roles as story editor and producer is they didn't have a lot of usable scripts Mm -hmm. and so Bidmead essentially said, hey, I, I know an actor who actually does some writing on the side. He's got a writing partner. Let's get them to produce the script. And the script came in and Bidmead said, oof, okay, this is going to need some work. So he put some work into it and it still underran and did some more work on it. And there were still problems with it. And this is something that's going to be ongoing throughout the entire season. Until we get writers that know their craft a bit better, Terrence Dix is going to have a script this season. Well, and this was written as a, not to use a D word, but a disposable serial installment. Yes. It was not built to last four decades. No. That's okay. That's true. And And it hasn't. And that's okay as well for us to make note of it. Even in 1980, when VHS recorders and Betamaxes, as they say in the UK, were probably coming a little bit more... Well, I don't even know that that's true. Yeah, I'm not even sure that people were thinking in 1980 that they would be recording these and watching them again. Well, were there daytime reruns yet? Yes. Was syndication a thing? Yeah. No. God, no. Not not of Doctor mm-hmm. Who. In fact, that's something that British fans were particularly annoyed with American fans about. Because we would get all of the Tom Baker stories or the John Pertwee stories or the John Pertwee and the Tom Baker stories stripped across weeknights for us until we ran out of them. And then they would repeat them. Whereas the BBC was extremely stingy about repeating anything. Hmm. And in fact, John Nathan Turner actually came up with the idea of doing a season of repeats called The Five Faces of Doctor Who. So that when he introduced Peter Davison, he had the BBC repeat a story from each of the doctors. Hmm. And this was an event because so few people had seen those original stories because the BBC never repeated them. Whereas in the US, we were getting them fairly regularly. I believe they were doing the same thing in Canada and in Australia. But yeah, in the UK, no. They didn't do repeats. They didn't do that sort of syndication that we do now. They probably do now, in fact. In fact, I know they do starting in the 90s. There was a uh, terrestrial station called UK Gold, and they repeated everything. 
So if you wanted to see something you'd never seen since the 70s, that's where you watched it. That's where a lot of people saw repeats of Doctor Who. In fact, that was about the only place you could watch Doctor Who on television in the UK in the 90s because it wasn't being produced. So yeah, long answer to a short question. Sorry there. Did I lose everybody? No, I'm sorry. No, we're here. Oh, okay. <laughs> we're just listening. <laughs> I was like, we're oh my God. Engaging. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh God, I'm having a flash forward to one of my classes tomorrow. Oh God. No. And say, isn't that interesting? And they just stare with their puny little minds that can't comprehend. Might take that a little personally. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No, no. I... But anyway, other things that we liked or disliked because, yeah. I mean, I wasn't overwhelmed with strong feelings of any description while no. reading this. Well, I was, but they weren't good. Oh, uh, I, this actually might be the only time, and maybe it's just the only time I've actually noticed that a one of these novelizations, I think, passed the Bechdel test twice. And I know it's a 40-year-old joke. It's not meant to be actually a test. But uh, Lexa and Karis discuss the dodecahedron, and then Karis and Romano do. Mm-hmm. True. So you can't take that for granted in, in the era in which this was written and aired. You really can't. Though with Doctor Who, you can almost always, if two women are having a conversation, they're probably not talking about a love interest. Sometimes they're talking about the Doctor, but they are often talking about some kind of impending catastrophe or monster or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like the new series where if you have two females... I have two females. If you have two women, females, yeah, I don't wearing clothes. Okay, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why that popped into my head. Come on now. Oh, I do know why it popped into my head. It's because one of my classes this week, one of the students had a problem with one of the essays saying, "Why does he keep saying females? That's an adjective. It should be women." It's like, yeah, I agree. So it must have stuck in my head. Anyway, if you have two females discussing anything in Doctor <laughs> Who in the revival series, even if it's the Doctor, then yes, they're probably talking about love interest. Uh, anyway. Mm. <laughs> well, and the mode of the new series is soapier. Oh, God, is it ever. Is there a reason why K-9 is being shot on? Yes. <laughs> shot upon, good sir, shot upon. Yes. There's actually a very sad reason. Mainly because John Nathan Turner was getting rid of all of the old stuff from Doctor Who, and including its lead actor. And he didn't much care for K-9 all that much, so he instructed the writers essentially to not use K-9 as much, or if they were going to use K-9 as much, basically make him the piss boy. Hmm. It's not as bad in this story, believe it or not. Though in this story, we find out that K-9 can no longer go on without being recharged every two hours. Oh, that's going to be permanent. Okay. Yeah. Man, that was a vicious dunk yeah. in the surf, wasn't it? Yeah, apparently so. Uh, enough that, yeah, that thing that happened in the last story is carrying directly over into this one. Hmm. So there's that. And then in the next story, it gets worse. And then the story after that, it is slightly better but that's because Terrence Dix is writing that one and he actually kind of seems to like canine a bit it's actually not a terrible idea though to say you know it's, it's a machine it's run down it's kind of outdated technology now relative to what else is possible the battery just doesn't hold as much charge as it used to mm -hmm. 
It's not a terrible plot point. Yeah. Not a good one, but it's not terrible. Well, that and as a companion, it's outlasted at least two people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, as much as I like K-9, it probably was time to retire him, but the production team at this point is doing so in a kind of like retire as in kill kind of way. I, you know, I'm never a fan of a robot yes. dog. I am well aware. I mean, I want to put down humanely. I don't want to drown in the sea. But... Well, yeah. I can't give away anything of what's going to happen to Kane. I just can't. <laughs> drown in the sea, drown in the river. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I just, it's funny coming from me because initially I wasn't sold on Canine. So now that I've become uh, a little affectionate towards him, now I am kind of sad to see him being underutilized. But it, it does feel like there could be a better way of going about that or a quicker way, you know? Oh, yeah. You're not the only one who feels that. Lots of fans have felt that he was being abused. And, of course, here's the weird thing. He's going to get his own Christmas special, and it's going to bring back Sarah Jane Smith, and it was supposed to be a pilot for a spinoff. And I'm not talking about Sarah Jane Adventures. I'm talking about K-9 and Company, which we'll be uh, reading for Christmas, uh, which I think we're doing about a year early. As a matter of fact, if we're talking about story order, that may be a year early, but I can't figure out where else to put the damn thing. But... The difficulty there is that Canine works well as a companion. I'm not absolutely certain he works all that well on his own, because even the Australian series with him has to take some major liberties. But Yeah, no, I, I could see him working well with an ensemble, with other things to guide him yeah, to play off of, I guess. But him being a lead-type character... Not so much. Yeah. I thought that the description of the screens of, was it Zofa? Zofa Thera, yeah. Had sort of a nice, ominous, mysterious description. How is that on screen? Um, It's a miniature. But is it a good one? Uh, <laughs> Say no more. It's okay. It's okay. I mean, it's kind of chroma keyed in, but it's not chroma keyed in the same way because of that screen sync technology. So it looks interesting. It really does. Everything, in fact, I haven't really said this often enough, but this season of Doctor Who looks entirely different to anything that came before it. But then we get scripts that are, if not as good, they're worse than some of the things that have come before it. So it kind of balances out a bit. That being said, Terrence Sticks, I'll give him this too. This has one of the darkest lines I've seen in a Doctor Who book in a while. In that first chapter, there are rumors that the concrete pilings that support some of the new motorways are hiding grisly secrets. Oh, yeah. It's like, holy shit. Are you trying to scare the little buggers that are going to read this book? And he's right, though. Trust me, we're going to get some Eric Sayward novels that are specifically going to tell us what sort of grisliness is hiding out in the London streets. But it's like, okay, so Dix has not lost any of his moxie when it comes to this, but he's confronted with the script. Ah, and chronic history sigh, I guess you'd call them. (laughs) God. Oh, and that's a ridiculous phrase, by the way. The whole idea, one, that Megalos has the power to do something like that, which is not explained. And two, both chronic and hysteresis have word roots for time in them. So it's time, time. Time, time. Time, time. 
Yeah, so they're going through time now. Which makes sense, because it's repeating. So Yes, <laughs> and the fact that they can just kind of redo their lines to break out of it. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Which makes me wonder why it wasn't applied during other parts of the story. Yes, but... especially since it means you have to watch that stretch of that scene over and over again in the televised version. I thought that Dix was going to have to do a cut and paste each time, which means he would have had to type it word for word each and every time. He doesn't. He actually gets around it. And I was like, thank you for that. It would have been a good way to pad out the page count. Well, for certain definitions of good. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Effective. Maybe not good. Effective. Maybe Megloss already used that spell for the day, so he needed to rest before he could use it again. <laughs> yeah, he rolled his d12 and it, he only <laughs> got a two. Yeah. God. <laughs> oh, this fucking story. Anything else we want to say about this one? No, never. Yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I don't need to ever say anything about the story ever again. Okay, you don't? Just Terrence Dix always described K9 as trundling. Yes. He trundled off. He trundled after. <laughs> he trundles a lot, doesn't he? He trundles a lot. Which makes <laughs> some sense, I guess, but yeah. It's like David Fisher in the last book using Roaring with Laughter too much. Trundling, yeah. You know if there's a trundle in there, it's Dick's... Yeah. Oh, she is singing. I thought I was hallucinating. (laughs) Which, every time I heard trundle, I just input that stock Hanna-Barbera wheel rolling noise into my head. (laughs) (laughs) Or the uh, recurring rolling typewriter on Sesame Street. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. I just realized something. Mm. I don't know what the Goodreads score for this is. I have to look it up. What? You are a leader. I know. And for some reason, I didn't have it ready. So give me two seconds and I'll get that. Nope, too late. Is it not in the notes or is that... The the one that's in the notes, I don't think is right. Because it seems too high. Okay. You have to be deposed. Dalton, sorry. Dalton is our leader now. I'll never be the leader. <laughs> Goodness. Well, you you may have to be. If ever I die suddenly, you're going to have to be the host for this thing. I I do not come with your breadth of knowledge, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fine, because almost nobody does. I'm right, it was too high. The 3.42 was not too high. (laughs) Didn't you think so? No. No, that's high. (laughs) I, I think we're going to Goodreads now, so don't you? Yeah. Yep. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes, as we always do, let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. I think we're going to leave all that in. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when you get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.16. Okay. Yeah, that's not a huge difference, but if this had come close to being a 3.5, I would have worried about the sanity of humanity. <laughs> the reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it three stars and says, An improvement? 
is the character of the human that Megalos first inhabits. In the book, he's given a name and a backstory. While on screen, for all that the actor was given to do, he might just as well have been an extra or even a waxwork dummy. Which leads me neatly onto one of the better aspects of the TV story, and which is unavoidably missed in the book, Tom Baker's makeup as Megalos, on the strength of which he got two waxworks of himself and Madame Tussauds at the same time a unique accomplishment. As well as the Megalos waxwork, there was one of Baker's The Doctor, which was later used in publicity photos for the 20th anniversary episode. Yes, we'll have to talk about that when we get there. One other thing was missing from the book, the presence of Jacqueline Hill as Lexa. Hill, who had played original companion Barbara, said she regretted appearing in this story, and that it was inappropriate to appear as a different character, but I think it may have had more to do with her feeling out of place, as she also said that the show had changed so much it was recognizable in name only. Whatever the case, I, and I think many other fans, were happy to see her. I wasn't so pleased to see Bill Frazier, on the other hand, about whom the least said the better. All I'll say is that, a bit over-ambitiously, co-writer John Flanagan envisaged Lee Marvin in the role of Grugger. Compare and contrast, I enjoyed the book far more by imagining Marvin in the role. <laughs> Michael in our Goodreads group gives it two stars and says, with a short run time, Megalos is probably the weakest entry in season 18, and yet I'd still rather watch it than some of what we get in season 17. I don't blame him. Wow. The sheer fact that Uncle Terrence gets this one up to the allotted page count is a minor miracle. Listening to the audio version last year, I was struck by how Dix is able to give the human host for Megalos a bit of a backstory and more of an arc than we see on screen. He even gives us some backstory to the conflict between the two worlds and makes the science versus religion debate a bit better. And yet, Dix still can't overcome that the villain is a talking cactus. He certainly gives it his best effort, but there's only so much he can do with the hand he's given. The audiobook of this one is another solid entry in the line. John Coleshaw has become one of the strongest readers as the range starts to wind down, and not just because he imitates Tom Baker spot on. Of course, having John Leeson on hand to read Canine's lines is an added bonus. Look, this isn't a great story, but it's a damn fun one. And the audiobook reflects that. I don't regret a moment I spent with this one. I wish I could say the same. And finally, Damon in our Goodreads group gives it two stars and says, An okay book, not too taxing or exciting, to be fair. Quick and easy to read. I like the human character's backstory. A bit of a precursor for Arthur Dent? Well, no. <laughs> because, because Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy would have been written first. So... I have a feeling that they were probably ripping off Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, as we talked about last time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? I'll go with a 2.5. I'll go in the middle. I think Terrence does a good job with what he has. As we've pointed out, the story has a lot of weaknesses and a lot of holes and a lot of things that just make you go, what? But... Yeah it doesn't mean that Terrence's writing is poor. So even though the story just falls apart in ways, he kind of put it back together in a way that it was at least semi-enjoyable. So yeah, I would say 2.5. Okay. And Allison? Uh, I like Damon's review. I'm going to go two stars. I especially like to describe it as not too taxing. <laughs> you know, it's a nice characterization of Morris. All the credit here goes to Terrence Dix. Oh, that was the whole thing? 
That is the whole thing. <laughs> That's it. Okay. <laughs> and as for me, I'd have to say 2.5 for the same reasons that both of you have given it your scores, because this is not a good story. If you're in the right mood for it, it can be kind of fun, especially since Tom Baker actually plays villains quite well and manages not to go too terribly over the top with Megalos, but we're talking about the book. And the book is definitely saved by Terrence Dix. Otherwise, I know for a fact that I was just dreading having to do this one. And I was right. But I still got it done in about a day and a half, and that's to Terrence Dix's credit. It's a terrible story, and he does make it better. Not that much better, so... Yeah, <laughs> 2.5. Well, thank you all. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we continue with Tom Baker's last season as we look at Andrew Smith's novelization of Full Circle. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC. And subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalic at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.